this podcast, you'll hear the story of Pesach Sheni. Pesach Sheni is the reason why you saw the title in the invite. What is the story of Pesach Sheni? So this week's Torah portion, the second reading, uh, third reading, sorry, third reading begins with the only Passover sacrifice that the Jewish people brought in the desert, and that was the first Passover after the story of Passover, one year later. And in that story, right after that, we read that there were those who were impure, and they came to Moses, and there's different opinions who they were. Some say it was Moses' uncle, as you remember, in the book of Leviticus, Vayikra, when Aaron's two sons died, because they were in the midst of their inauguration, they were not allowed to deal with the burial of their own sons slash brothers. So Moshe told them, don't worry, our uncle will do it. And according to some opinions, these are the people. Uh, other opinions, who it was, those that carried the, archa- the, the coffin of Joseph. Different opinions I've seen who exactly this was. So they came to Moses and they told Moses that Tmei Meitzen, we're impure. If you're impure, you can't participate in the Passover sacrifice. And Moshe Rabbeinu goes ahead and tells them, stand and hear what God will tell you. Rashi points out, rejoice to the man who's so certain that when he turns to God, God will answer him. And all of a sudden, we're told about a whole new mitzvah. And it's called Pesach Sheni, those who were far away, those who were impure and could not participate in the Passover sacrifice will come one month later. You'll have the Passover sacrifice. You'll eat it with matzah and morah. No, you do not have to re-clean the whole house. Don't worry, women. But what happens is you have the second Passover. It's a second chance. And then the verse goes on to say, however, those that were capable of doing the first one and did not do the first one, that's punishable. You can't purposely go ahead and not do the first one. But if you were not able to do the first one, either because you were impure or you were in a distance from the Holy Temple, you could not be able to do that. And Russia is a very interesting study on what the distance is. But either way, what we're taught is there's a second chance. What is the message of Pesach Sheni? If you look into the Rebbe Blessed Memory's calendar called Hayom Yom, on the day of Pesach Sheni, he gives that famous teaching that what? Famous saying in Yiddish, it is never too late. It's never lost. And that is the theme of Pesach Sheni, and that's in this week's Torah portion. And because that's in this week's Torah portion, Bahalotcha, therefore we're going to talk about second chances. You saw a couple of questions I sent out in the invite. Are second chances for real? Number one. Number two, if we do have second chances, what do we do with the first chance that we botched up? Is that like, what is that? Is that a skeleton in the closet? Do we run away from it? Do we sweep it under the carpet? Do we deal with it? And that's what we're talking about here. Does God forgive and forget? Does he only forgive but doesn't forget? I mean, again, metaphorically speaking, there is no, there's no shikha, there's no forgetfulness before God. So what exactly is going on here? So for those who follow me on Twitter, I send out a tweet. I send out a daily tweet. Yes. Twitter is the ultimate rabbinical challenge. An entire thought in 140 or 20 characters, right? <laughs> but thank God, when you text, you can put R instead of A-R-E, U instead of Y-O-U. But I try not to do that, other than the and symbol. 
try to stick an entire thought message, a uh, meaningful message in that amount of characters. And it's very interesting. For those who follow me a tweet, it's Avram.Lipschitz or Avram Lipschitz, whatever it is. Go ahead and do a tweet uh, search on Twitter. And every single day I send out one message. And this morning the message was second chances is the original plan. It's why the soul came down here. And that's what we're going to talk about now. Second chance is not only are they real, what I'm going to share with you today is that according to teachings, second chance is the original plan. You will notice time and time again throughout history, Jewish people are always put into the position of second chance. Let's start with the birth of our nation. 40 days after we became a nation, Moses comes down with the first set of tablets. What happens? He breaks it, second chance. 40 days he prays for forgiveness. Another 40 days he comes up, comes down Yom Kippur, the ultimate day of atonement, and he comes down with a second set of tablets. There's used teachings. We had the first temple, we lost the first temple, and we had the second temple. And now we're waiting for the third temple. We keep on finding this in history. We seem to be mevinim, the ultimate maven, and botching up and needing to come back for a second chance. Another question is why? And what I'm sharing with you today is that the reason we're here is not to get it right the first time, but to actually experience a second chance. Well, exactly what I wrote in the Twitter was, second chances is the original plan. The perfect soul came down into the imperfect body to experience the power of teshuva. To understand this, we need to back up a little bit and discuss a little bit of Hasidus and the Kabbalistic teachings on why did the soul come down here, what does the Torah offer us, and what do we offer the Torah? It's a two-way relationship. There's what the Torah gives us, and then there's what the Torah receives from us. In Torah, you have the masculine sometimes, and sometimes you have the feminine. The Torah is a giver, the Torah is also a recipient. The Jewish people are recipients of the Torah, and they're also givers to the Torah. We give the Torah what the Torah does not have on its own. We talk about making a blessing on studying the Torah before you study the Torah, because the Torah on itself is on one level. Making a blessing before you, draw, before you study Torah is what we talk about by King David. King David drew the author, the essence, into the book. And on that level, the Torah is the recipient. So there is a two-way relationship. And what we would like to discuss tonight is, what does the Torah have on its own? And what is the Torah the recipient of the Jew? What can the terrestrial, imperfect, finite Jew give the infinite, spiritual, it's referred to as God's toy, God's source of pleasure. What can the finite Jew give to the Torah? And what you're hearing from me is right now, we're going to talk about the Torah as the first chance, and what the Torah gives the Jew is the second chance. So let's go back to an interesting teaching. 
God asked three identities. What should I do to he who sins? Our sage tell us this conversation. God asked wisdom. What should I do to the Jew that sins? And wisdom answered. It's a verse. Wisdom gives life to its master. And once you've disconnected with wisdom, Torah is chachma. Once you've desecrated, severed that relationship, the person must die. God turned around to the Torah and asked the Torah, and what do you say I should do with he who sins? And the Torah refers to itself in the book of Leviticus for the unintentional sin. There is a karban, there is kapara, there's teshuvah. You can bring a sacrifice and be atoned. There's the sin offering, the guilt offering, and that atones. But what happens to he or she who does an intentional sin? Bemezid, not bishogeg. You can't bring these sacrifices. Torah says, there I can't help. He or she who has intentionally disconnected themselves from me, I cannot help and they must die. And then Hashem asked the Holy One, blessed be He. And what does Hashem say? And Hashem answered, he who sinned, let them do teshuvah and be forgiven. So the Torah has its limitations. The Torah can stand by he or she who has unintentionally sinned, but he or she who has voluntarily sinned, it can't help. You've cut yourself off from me, so how can I help you? But then there's a greater power, which is the power of Hashem, which says, and he or she who sins, let them do teshuvah, and let them be forgiven. An interesting conversation. Let me divert for a moment to Rashi and come back to this conversation. Rashi asks a simple question. One of the 613 commandments is Pesach Sheni, the second Passover. Yet this mitzvah is very unique because most mitzvahs begin by Yedabar Hashem Moshe and God spoke to Moses, Lamor, saying, Dabar of Israel, speak to the children of Israel and tell them ABC. That's how we got all our mitzvahs. This mitzvah happens in a very unique way. This mitzvah doesn't happen by Moses, God talking to Moses, telling Moses to tell the children of Israel. Rather, it starts off with a group of people that come to Moshe Rabbeinu frantic. Even more so, not only are they frantic, but they give the answer in their question. They said, we are impure. So they already answered the question. What should we do? What do you mean, what should you do? You can't bring the sacrifice. What are you expecting for me to tell you? You gave me the answer. You came to me and told me that you're impure. You can't participate in the sacrifice. Loma Nigoda, why are we in such a, why are we worth any less? Why are we in such a difficult position? But you already told me the rule. So what are you expecting for me to answer you? There was no thought pattern at that moment saying, that God would create a new holiday for them. It wasn't in their thought pattern. So what were they thinking? Yet they did what they did. And what is the outcome? That all of a sudden, a new mitzvah is introduced. Why did the mitzvah come down that way? 
Why didn't God tell Moses to tell the Jewish people that there's Pesach Sheni? They would have never come screaming because they would have known what the answer is before the question. And voila. So for those of us that live today in the world of computer, it seems to be that God sent out a patch. Oops, guys, there's a glitch in the program. Just install this patch and it'll be okay. Pesach Sheni seems to be an afterthought, a patch. God forbid. 613 commitments existed before the world was created. Torah was existing before the world was created. 2,000 years before the world was created, there was a Torah which was black fire and white fire. And in there it told the story of all 613 commandments. One of the 613 commandments is Pesach Sheni. So obviously this was the original plan. The original plan was that there's going to be two Pesachs. This wasn't a last minute scrabble to create a patch. And if that be the case, then why did it come to us the way it came to us? Why didn't it come to us the way everything else came to us? And God spoke to Moses saying, tell the children of Israel that those who are impure or too far away from the Holy Temple, they have on the second month, on the 14th day of year, to bring the sa sacrifice, and that is with Matzah and Mororim, and that will be called Pesach Shemi. Bearing this in mind, we now come back to this conversation. We're going to go back and forth a little bit to understand what's going on here. Our sages teach us that there are three things, three knots that connect three things. There's the Holy One, blessed be He, the Torah, and the Jewish people. Now what I just said is factually wrong. When you have three things, you need two knots, not three knots. So if I have Kut connected to Torah, Torah connected to the Jewish people. So why does it say Tlask Shorim? There are three knots. So Chassidus explains that after the Jewish people connect to Torah, which connects them to Hashem, then there's another knot which goes from Hashem straight to the Jew. So we find many times this concept that there is this type of connection between the Jew and Hashem which transcends the limitations of Torah. Even when Torah says, I can't help you, there is a direct connection that can help us. Where do we find this direct connection more than anywhere? It's in the world of Teshuvah. Because as you know, in Kabbalah we're taught that the 613 mitzvot, all, all are brought to us through the four-letter name of God. The Yud, the Hey, the Vav, and the Hey. For those of you that, that uh, say it at your nightly prayers before you go to sleep, there are the four paragraphs that if I have caused any stain, any defect in the letter Yud, and also in the letter Aleph from Adnai, Aleph, Dal, Nun, Yud, which is the way we pronounce the Yud, K, Vav, K. So then by doing this sin, then let us, and it goes on and on. Because all the mitzvahs that come to us come to us through the four letters, which are the ten sfirot, which are the ten commandments, which is the source in which lies all the Torah, all 613 commandments. So when we talk about the Torah, we talk about the name of God, the Yud Kei Vav Kei, Torah Hashem. But when we come to Teshuvah, you'll find very often the terminology Lifnei Hashem Titaru. Simply speaking, without Kabbalah, what it means is, before God, you shall purify yourself. In Kabbalah, we're taught, and Chassidus explains it to us, 
that the whole concept of Yom Kippur is to find that essence of the Jew which transcends beyond and above the Yud Kevavke. So therefore, even when the law tells us that we cannot do Teshuvah, if you look into the uh, Talmud in Sanhedrin, there's a list of people that cannot do Teshuvah. Ha'omer echtava ashuv, someone says, I will sin and do Teshuvah. There are other led categories that Hashem closes the door, someone who got other people to sin, so there are laws, the Torah says, that you cannot do Teshuvah. But that is again, that is within the conversation between Hashem and Torah. And what should I do to the, the Jew that sins? God asks Torah, and Torah gives very clear description, definition, parameters. Who can and who cannot be forgiven. But on Yom Kippur, the whole job is lifne Hashem which according to Kabbalah means lifne, before, above, transcend, beyond the name, the ineffable name of God. And on that level you have that not, which is essence to essence, and on that level there's nothing which is not forgivable. So when we talk about Torah, Torah has a very clear description, a definition, as infinite as it is, it manifests itself in very clear, finite definition of law. The Torah is called Or HaTorah, the light of Torah. Yet we refer often to the Mo'or Torah, the source of light in the Torah. The source of light is what the Jew brings into the Torah. To quote our sages, King David would connect, Chiber, he would connect the Notena Torah with the Torah. He who gave the Torah with the Torah. So there is the Torah, which is already the finished product, and then there is the author of the Torah. He who wrote the Torah. He who upon it is said, he who commanded oil to burn will command vinegar to burn. But the Torah in its own right manifested itself in the Yudke Vavke, manifested itself in the Ten Svirot, manifested itself in the Ten Commandments, the 613 Mitzvot, and the clear laws of Teshuvah. So the Torah represents light. Light, the straight light, or yashar, the original light, is what we call tonight the first chance. And that Torah was not given to the angels who were perfect, the angels who would never have caused a breaking of the first tablets, a need for a second tablets, never would have desecrated the laws, for they are perfect. They have no two sides of the heart. They only have one natural flow. Torah dictates and they actualize. What is the power of the Jew? Why did the Neshama come down here? The soul, what do you think the soul was doing before it came down here? Where does the soul go to after it leaves here? 
And we have a verse that teaches us, the prophet says, and I stood before God. Standing before God means in paradise, the Garden of Eden, the soul stood in prayer, the soul stood in study of Torah. That's what the Garden of Eden is all about. It's an absolute bliss basking in the light of Torah. That is the light of Hashem. So why do we take a soul out of the Garden of Eden, a perfect soul in a perfect environment, and schlep them down to a very imperfect body in a very imperfect world to live a very imperfect life? And what do we do? We teach the baby, the soul, in the, while it's in the embryo, we teach it the entire Torah. And then what do we do right before it's born? We knip it, it forgets the whole Torah. We want it to study the Torah. Without the first chance, without Hashem the, sending the angel to teach us the entire Torah, the human mind would never be able to grasp any divine intellect. So first it had to be taught and given. It's already there. And then the knip, because the first chance isn't meaningful. The second chance is powerful. We want you to forget so that now on your own you can work hard, studiously, and drill away. Make a consummation take place between divine intellect, divine wisdom, and human intellect. Again, the first chance, the second chance. What does a second chance have that the first chance doesn't have? There are very beautiful teachings that the only reason the soul came down into this world is to experience teshuvah because neither angels nor souls in the Garden of Eden can ever appreciate what teshuvah is. And let's go back to what happened now with the story. So they come to Moses and they're screaming. What are they screaming? Lama nigara. Why are we worth any less? This is a fundamental sacrifice. This is the birthday of our nation. It's Pesach. How can we not participate in Karman Pesach? Yeah, I know I botched up. Yeah, I know I was kicked out. I know that I came in contact with the lowest level of impurity, which is the absence of life, which is death. Yes, I know I'm considered distant. It's all true, Moshe Rabbeinu. I have no answer, and I, I don't even know what exactly, what leg I'm standing on when I stand in front of you and I talk to you. But that's not the issue here. I'm not talking about right or wrong. I'm talking about my soul celebrating the birthday of our nation. And thus they came to Moses knowing that there's no logical way that they could be helped. But the pain of separation on that level, when they touched their essence, became so unbearable that they came to Moses screaming, what do you want me to do? I don't know what I want you to do. But this can't happen. To separate us at our core from God, regardless of what we did, regardless of how far we went, regardless of how low we fell, how can you separate the essence of a Jew from the essence relationship with God? Passover. 
Do you all remember what you said Passover in the Agada? It was I and not a saraf, I and not an angel, I alone came. The relationship of Passover was an essence-to-essence relationship. And in an essence-to-essence relationship, how can you tell me no? How can you tell a Jew that in the essence-to-essence relationship, you've passed the point of no return? The point of no return does not exist in an essence-to-essence relationship. The point of no return only exists when we talk about Torah Hashem. The Torah as it manifests itself in the capacity and definition, as much as it's the tetragrammaton, as much as it's the ineffable name, as much as it's the essence name, it's a name. So in the four letters, Yudke Vavke, from which shines forth the ten Sfirot, which receives its sustenance from the Ten Commandments, there is definition. There is the point of going too far. But if we're talking about an essence-to-essence connection, we're talking about lifne Hashem titaru, transcending beyond your own ten kochot, your ten faculties, reaching into an essence where you come screaming to Moses, knowing that there's no logical outcome to this, other than banging your head in the wall and saying, woe to me, woe to me. What are you going to gain by going to Moses? Why did they go bother Moses? And Rashi tells us, Moses and Aaron were sitting in yeshiva. They were sitting in the tent learning. And they came charging in, Rebbe, Rebbe, Ratave, Rebbe, save me. What happened? What happens is that we're impure. What kind of impurity? The impurity that's of the lowest order, that's going to need eight days to purify itself with the red heifer. We don't have the time to do it. What do we do? Moses is sitting there as a rabbi. And very often the rabbi sits with tears in his eyes and says, I don't know what I can do for you. What is there to do? I I can't help you. You yourself have defined to me the parameters of the law. What can I do other than pray for you? Feel bad for you. Listen to you. Give you a shoulder to lean on. But something told Moses, go to God. Now here's a bigger problem. If I'm asking you how dare Chassidim come bothering their Rebbe when they knew that there's nothing that could be done, you knew the answer before. Your Rebbe is sitting and learning with his brother, Moshe, and Aaron are sitting and learning Torah. What'd you bother them for? Now let's ask the question bigger. Moshe Rabbeinu learned the law straight from God. Moshe Rabbeinu knew the laws. He knew there's nothing that could be done for these people. Why did he bother God? What are you going knocking on God's door? With a certainty. Imdu, stand. And I will tell I will bring you the word of God. Why would God answer? Uh, Moses, we already discussed that. You know the rules. Yet Moses was so certain something was going to take place here. Why? In American movies, the good guy always wins. (laughs) They say in the Irish movies, the good guy usually doesn't win. What did Moses think? This is an American movie. Uh, We can't just let them like that crying over there. We got to help them out. You know, love overcomes everything. That's not what's going on in the desert. When you talk to God, there is no Hollywood production. There are some difficult endings to stories. 
We witnessed it. We witnessed it in the history of our people. So who told Moses that he should bother God? Who told Moses God is going to answer him just because he's bothering? And maybe that is what Rashi is saying. Rejoice the person who's so sure that God's going to answer him. Not shot that he has a question and he's going to get an answer. Any Jew that has a question, God should answer. Maybe what Rashi is really saying here, and I'm not, I don't know this, I didn't see this anywhere. But maybe what Rashi is really saying here is that Moshe Rabbeinu was nudging God on something he already knew the answer. Because he knew the law. And he knew there's nothing we can do here. So what's going on here? What made this Chassidim feel that they can bother their Rebbe? And what made their Rebbe Moshe Rabbeinu think that they can bother God for something that was already discussed and finalized? These are the laws of the Passover. Finished. You're impure. You can't come to the temple. You can't eat sacred flesh. You cannot participate in the Passover. We'll sit and cry with you, but there's nothing we can do for you. What's going on here? And now let's go to that Rashi I told you about. This mitzvah came a very different way. And were I to play with the words of Rashi, which usually I don't, it's not my job to create new insights. But Rashi is very clear. And he used the word zakai. The reason is because of why? The reason is because these Jewish people, they had this chut that through them should come the mitzvah. And the words that he uses to bring the chut through the zakai. In the world of Hasidus, the word zach also means refinement. Pure, crystal clear, refined. He's refining himself. And maybe what Rashi is really telling us is that to reach beyond to reach that level which transcends beyond Torah, the ultimate place of light, the source of light, he who wrote the book, can only happen only through those who ultimately refine themselves. What was the refinement of these Jews? These Jews did something that made them become zakai. They became refined people. And what kind of refined people? That what the Torah cannot deliver, because the Torah needs to manifest itself within definition. Yudke vavke, ten sfirot, ten commandments, right and wrong. The point of no return and beyond the point of no return. They were going to reach into zchut. They were going to reach into the place where second chances do exist for those who have fallen the forest. The furthest. What did they do? What teshuva? doesn't say in the Torah anything that they did teshuva. doesn't say that they sat down and they went to the mikveh and they stayed up a whole night and they tikkun this and tikkun that before they went. doesn't say that. The verse begins the story, and they came to Moses. So we got to find what they did in this conversation. And what they did in this conversation was they were able to shed beyond their rational, emotional relationship with God and come to the point where they scream out, Lama Nigara. What do you mean, Lama Nigara? What, what do you mean, why are we less? You're less because of what you just said. Tmei Mason. We're, we're Tmei Nefesh. We've come in contact with the dead. 
And in Kabbalah, that's the lowest level of impurity. Life. Torah is life. Absolute coldness, apathy, disconnection, total submission to the other side is called death. And they're saying that we became, we became, we in touch with death. The ultimate absence of any holiness relationship, any Jewish feeling, any Jewish spark, nada. So what are you asking Lama Negara? That was their self-refinement. You know I write about the 12 steps, I'm working through the 12 steps. There's that point which they call hitting rock bottom. Hitting rock bottom <laughs> is not an act of teshuva. It's just a moment of real reality. It's the first time an addict is shaken out of his world of denial. Addiction depends upon a fantasy world. You create a fantasy world, you live in denial, you never face yourself at all. And the reason why addicts keep on doing whatever their choice of poison is, it's because that's the only thing that protects them from the world of reality. That moment, which they call hitting rock bottom, that moment is only one step, which is the ultimate step of Teshuvah. It's where all the outer layers crack, and just for one moment, you're looking directly into who you are. That's all. It's a pitiful sight. It's a painful moment. You're somewhere on a cold bathroom floor, hysterical. But that one moment of shaking everything off, and really hitting rock bottom to really feel the raw nakedness of self. That is the ultimate moment of teshuva. It's where you step out of denial, you know who you are, regardless of what you've done and where you've been. That's what it's all about. That's all that happened to them. All they happened, had to realize was that we've played the game, it was beautiful, we dove in Shabbos and Shul, and Shul, Sunday we did whatever we did, it's beautiful, you know, Saturday morning at synagogue, Saturday night at South Beach, and it's all beautiful. And we learn to juggle this too. Sometimes it gets difficult, I've told you people many times, I've shared with you, I actually think more in pictures than I do in words. And to me, it's, you know, when you're walking on both sides of the road, but then all of a sudden, the road starts splitting into a fork. So you're still okay. One leg stretched out, it's becoming more difficult, and then at a certain point, you realize you're splitting yourself right in the center up. We can't do this no more. But we still manage. That's with drugs, alcohol, sex, shopping, chocolate, whatever you want. Whatever your choice of addiction is. That's what helps. Medetzechayim, you know what that means in Yiddish? Absolute denial. You talk yourself into, things are still okay, still in control, it's okay. But then there comes a point where you hear, it's not okay. It's not okay. I can't go on. What's gonna be, where's gonna be, how do I come back, it's over, that. I don't care. 
that point where they realized, whoa, 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 of course we played, of course we sinned, but what did you just say? We can't participate in the one and only Passover sacrifice that's going to take place for the next 40 years in the desert? Well, that, that, that's not what we signed up for. Of course we danced with the devil. But we never sold the essence of our soul. We gave our intellect. We gave our passion. We gave our emotions. We gave our pleasure. We gave it all away to the devil. But no one told us that, <laughs> that this is part of the mathematics. Of course we're Jewish. No matter what we do, <laughs> I'm Jewish. And the minute they heard, whoa, you can't participate in the Passover lamb, the essence to essence is being denied to you, that's when they had their breakdown and hit rock bottom. That's when they came running to Moses knowing that there's no answer to this, but they were screaming from a very deep place, Lama Nigara. Now Moses knew that these people are bright people, they know the game, they know the rules. Why are they here? And when Moses saw something that really not many people can experience and understand, to see another person hit rock bottom, to be able to look at the ultimate destruction and see that we're now looking into the ashes of the phoenix, this is what we were waiting for. This is exactly what we were waiting for. It took so long till it burnt itself, it turned into ashes. We're now at the door of rebirth. He knew that what's going to happen now is unprecedented in Torah because Torah cannot produce this on its own. This is not something that God could have told Moses to tell the Jews. This had to come from the ultimate moment of rock bottom of a Jew. From that moment where there's nothing left but ashes. And from here, the Jew does not give up. The Jew comes running to his Rebbe's tent, knocking on the door, interrupting his Rebbe's learning with nothing bright to say. Yes, it's true, we this and we that, and we this and we that. So what do you want from me? It's just one thing. Lama Nigara. We're not talking about getting awards. We're talking about essence to essence. How can that be severed? And when Moses saw the eyes of those people, Moses knew, wait here, I'm going to bring you back an answer from God. Because Zakai brings chut. You've reached a place which transcends the Torah's boundaries. You're going to introduce into the Torah something which is unprecedented to the Torah itself. The Torah in its own standing cannot, it cannot entertain the thought of Pesach Sheni. But once the Jew reached that place, came running to Moses, Moses stood before God, and this was a moment where the Torah was a recipient from that unbelievable, untouchable knot between a God and Jew, a Jew and God. 
The Torah which defines itself as Chachma. The Torah that defines itself as light. The Torah that defines itself as Chesed. Was now going to experience something which transcends Chachma, which transcends Or, which transcends Chesed. It was going to now become a conduit and a recipient from an essence-to-essence relationship. And when everything in the terrestrial and celestial worlds said, we are so sorry, there's nothing we can do, did you crack through it all? And what was the crack? Hitting rock bottom, shattering all the outer layers, in one moment breaking free of all the shackles and bondage that it sold its soul to the devil, it stood face to face with God, and the connection was made. And thus, we have Pesach Sheni. That's something the Torah can't have on its own. It's something the Jew has to give the Torah. Torah is defined by Or. The Jew is not called the light of God. It's called the son of God. The essence connection. One of the questions I asked was, and well this will close it up. One of the questions I asked was, and what do you do with the first chance once you have the second chance? I'm going to be brief because this, in truth, is an entire lecture for itself. But I want this to be said. There are two levels in how you deal with your past when you're about teshuva or abalas teshuva. One level is absolute denial. Now I want to share with you, I've discussed this with professionals, and we've been in agreement, shall we say. Finally, I had a professional who told me, Rabbi, I think you're right. There's nothing wrong with denial at certain times. If not for denial, we would not be able to function. If the first step of Teshuvah was to have to live with the consciousness of everything you've done in the past, you will not be able to live through Teshuvah. So you need that first direct shattering where you come into full nakedness, no denial at all to hide behind. And then the next morning, it's very important that you go right back into a healthy level of denial, putting things into the closet, knowing that I can't deal with this right now. It is very healthy and important to do that. To know, not now. I will have to deal with this at a later time. So I will suggest tonight that the first level of teshuva in second chance is go into absolute denial of what happened to your first chance. Just don't deal with it right now. Keep it at a safe distance just to know what could happen if you let go again. But don't deal with it. Don't cry over it every morning. Just don't deal with it. Start a new path. But then I will suggest to you there comes a time where you realize I need to stop running away from my past. I need to stop hiding it under the carpet. I need to stop hiding it in the closet because this is what makes me beautifully me. Now that I'm in a healthy place, I can bring back my past and use it as a gift. I can understand what other people don't understand. I can help people that other people can't help and I can serve God in ways that other people can't because of where I've been. That's a total different dimension of teshuva. 
So when I ask what do you do with your first chance once you're given a second chance, it depends at what stage. No one but you will know what time it is, what time is the right time to let something out of the closet. Let another demon out of the closet, let another skeleton out, because you're about to transform it. Don't do it before you're ready, but when you're ready, it's a beautiful experience. You become the richest you you can ever be. And that's all for tonight, guys.